You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we'll be speaking with Oliver Franklin Wallace about his new book, Wasteland, The Secret World of Waste and the Urgent Search for a Cleaner Future. Oliver is an award-winning magazine journalist and is the current features editor for British GQ magazine. In 2017, he was named the Print Writer of the Year by the British Society of Magazine Editors. This is his first book. Oliver Franklin Wallace, welcome to That Said. I'm delighted to be here. So before we begin diving into this extraordinarily interesting book, Wasteland, The Secret World of Waste and the Urgent Search for a Cleaner Future, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, well, thanks for having me. Uh, as you you can probably hear, uh, I'm British. I'm an English journalist based in the UK. And my day job these days is I'm a features editor at GQ, the, the men's magazines, which hopefully your your listeners will have heard of. Um, this story, this book predates that. I was working uh, as a, a freelance writer a few years ago, and I kind of got interested in this subject because um, I saw a little news line about China and China for and I didn't know this at the time but for the last couple of decades or so China has been the kind of preeminent destination for the world's waste so when you kind of throw away your recycling a lot of it was getting loaded onto container ships and sent thousands of miles across the ocean to be recycled in China and in about 2018 they kind of finally got sick of being the world's kind of trash can and, and they shut their doors suddenly and quite dramatically um, and it led to this sudden and kind of panicked uh, crash in the in the recycling market, and a bunch of the big companies went went bust. And I remember reading this kind of short news article about it, and I thought, well, this is interesting. And I ended up writing a story about it for the Guardian, um, the, the British newspaper. And while I was reporting that story, I had a kind of great time uh, visiting these kind of huge, uh, quite grotesque facilities where all your trash goes after, you know, the, the trash uh, truck kind of picks up your garbage on collection day and it drives them away to these sorting facilities. And these are kind of like these huge industrial warehouses with all sorts of complicated, um, it's kind of like a production line in reverse, if you can imagine it, you know, they're separating all the materials out and they're different, going now down these different conveyor belts and things. And it's kind of this awe-inspiring thing to witness. And this gruff kind of Cockney guy who owned this um, recycling business uh, said to me, you know, uh, everything you own will one day belong to me. And I just thought, wow, you know, that is one of those kind of like, it, the light bulb goes off in your head moment. And very few of that's happened very few times in my career. But he, he was he was totally right. You know, there is this entire side to the global economy that we never really think about. We, we think so much about where our stuff comes from, whether it's free trade, whether it's organic, whether it's this, whether it's that. And we don't think about the other 50 percent of its kind of lifespan after it's done. And so I kind of became uh, entranced by by the, the idea of this kind of hidden economy and, and the people behind it. And it set me off on this, what turned into a four-year journey and, and became this book. It's a fascinating book. It's a book that I read and every chapter I'd have an aha moment, stuff that I just didn't know anything about. Though curiously, when I was a kid, uh, my father told me, this is in the late 1960s, early 1970s. He told me I should go into waste management. That was the future problem that the world would have to 
go to. I always thought it was just a reflection of my room and the mess I kept it in. But little <laughs> did I know your book would come along and prove him right. His prescient, sounds like a prescient guy is like the line in The Graduate where he says, you know, you should go into plastics as a future in plastics. And you look back on that and think, wow, he, he, he wasn't wrong. Exactly. Um, so I'm grateful you didn't so that we are, we're still talking here today. Exactly. Me too. I don't think I would have done well in that industry. <laughs> the book tackles waste management by categories of things, paper, plastic, mm-hmm. human excrement, etc., hazmat stuff. And I'd like to delve into them because you structurally organize the book by sort of types of products that get recycled. But before we do that, can you tell us a little bit about sort of the amount of maybe the gross numbers of waste that we're producing globally? Sure. I mean, waste uh, has has always been a, a human problem since the dawn of civilization, like humans and, and trash kind of come hand in hand, as it were. Um, yeah, well, the thing that really blew my mind at the start of this journey was just how big this problem is. I mean, globally, we produce about 2 billion tons of solid waste every year. Um, in the US, I think the figure is about 4.4 pounds per person per day, uh, which is a kind of crazy sum when you think about it. Um, about a third of all food worldwide is wasted. Uh, meanwhile, we have 820 million people every day who go hungry. There's this completely uh, mind-blowing statistic about just, just about food waste, which is that if you added up all of the fields used to grow wasted food, you would cover the subcontinent of India. Like this, this is the size of the of, of the scale of food waste in the world. And that's just kind of one thing that we throw away. Uh, and it's a huge climate issue. Um, for me, waste, a big part of the attraction of this story was that waste is 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 the front line of, of um, climate change in the sense that, you know, we are all seeing and touching this stuff every day. We all have a, a role to play in, in reducing it. And I kind of came to this um, position that, well, if we can't deal with the stuff with the village, you know, the yogurt pots and stuff that we're all washing at the end of the day and throwing away, then what chance do you have to get people to care about and change smokestacks and, you know, continents away in China? Um, so it's a huge problem. And it's it's one that is actually growing quite quickly. I think the um, World Bank estimates is going to be another 1.3 billion tons of waste um, generated every year by 2050, which is due to the population explosion and the growth of consumerism in the global south. Um, so it's something we kind of need to get a grip on fairly quickly. Um, and I, I guess that, that's where I started. Uh, one of the statistics in the book, which just sort of like dropped me, was 480 billion plastic bottles are sold worldwide every year. That's 20,000 per second. Yeah, I can't remember the exact number of times those bottles would stretch to the moon and back, but it's more than once. Uh, which is is kind of crazy when you think about it. There's a part in the is it in the Pacific Ocean where there's like the plastics all sort of like mm. come come together, and you say that there are about 11 million tons of plastic dumped into the ocean every year. The footprint that's of about, which would be what in relationship to say France? That's right. Yeah, the the, the it's called the the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which is this kind of gyre in the center of the Pacific, where a lot of the plastic that ends up the ocean kind of ends up swirling together into this gigantic uh, mass. And it is estimated that this that this area is now about three times the size of France, uh, which I kind of can't get my head around yeah, even now. Um, mm. And it's you know it's it's growing. It's as we speak, there are thousands of ton, thousands of tons of plastics entering our ocean. Um, yeah. How, in some sense, did we get into this mess? You talked about how companies which were previously incentivized to produce the best product they could that would last the longest now became in planned obsolescence mode and you talk about the light bulb as an example but talk a little bit about planned obsolescence because that sort of is the predicate for how we are moving in this dire direction that we're headed in well yeah that's right i mean one of the things that i found most surprising about this story is that waste you know humans have always had to tackle with waste but never before on the scale uh, that we do now and it's a relatively new problem you know prior to World War II, really, 
the idea of disposables, you know, single use things that we that we take for granted every day now weren't really a thing. In fact, the, the term disposable was not really used in the same way. Disposable prior to that meant uh, kind of a nice added extra, like the, the way you would say disposable income. And it isn't until the introduction of the disposable diaper in the 1940s that, that this term starts to take hold. After the Second World War, during the Second World War, they had a huge number of um, innovations, several of which were new types of plastics. So you had things like saran wrap and you know all of these other kind of new materials flooding the market. And you get the great consumer boom of the 1950s. And towards the end of the 1950s, particularly in, in the West, we kind of had this uh, Odea moment because we realized, okay, we've, we've made all of this new stuff or well, what are we going to do with it? Because there was no, at that time, there wasn't really any uh, recycling in an in, in industrial scale, not of plastics. There, there's, I think it's Steinbeck has these accounts in the 1950s of like driving through the outskirts of American cities and seeing these huge waste dumps and abandoned cars on the, you know, piles of abandoned cars on the side of the motorway. And so you, you have this new, it's, it is, you know, in my grandparents' lifetime, we suddenly have this world that's consumed by disposability. Now, you mentioned planned obsolescence, and that, that's a kind of classic and fascinating one, which is, so it used to be, if you think about the Ford Model T, right? Ford, like Henry Ford went out and he said, I want to make my cars last as long as possible. You'll only never need, ever need to buy one car, and we're going to make it last, last a lifetime. And companies would compete as to how, how high quality their products were. When the consumer boom, the golden age of the 1950s and Mad Men and all those kind of that era comes around, they actually realize that that, that that logic is all wrong and they need to flip it on their head. Because once everyone has already got one of everything, you need to compel them to buy the new version, right? You've got a radio well, you've got to buy a second radio for these companies to keep growing. So they have to come up with reasons for you to keep replacing them and buying things new. So they ramp up the design refresh. You know, your car, suddenly they release a new model every year. You think about how your phone now you know, every 12 months, there's a new model and you and there's all this messaging to, to update it. And at the same time, they realize that one of the, the best things that you can do to make pe- people replace things faster is to have things wear out sooner. So you have this, the, the advent of what's called planned obsolescence, which is this idea that products are designed to only last a limited time. Um, so electronics, for example, will use lower quality components than they pr- could have or, 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 or would have. Uh, because they know that when it breaks, you'll buy a new one. And the classic example of this is, as you mentioned, was the light bulb. Um, around the event, around the time that the, the light bulb was becoming popular, a bunch of the big manufacturers, Osram and some of the others, kind of all got together and they realized that actually, if they had, you know, a, a light bulb that lasts a million hours, and in those days, some of these incandescent bulbs could last for decades at a time, then people would never need to buy new ones. So they all agreed on an industry standard lifespan and they all agreed not to manufacture a light bulb. So it's basically artificially limit the number of you know, uses that a light bulb would have so that you could keep buying new ones. Um, and the, 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 I mean, the book has plenty, plenty more of these stories, but it is true to say that this, the result of planned obsolescence, the result of this kind of attitude and that we have as an economy towards single use, towards disposability, the the flip side of that has been a huge explosion in our garbage problems. And so you started mentioning MRFs, and let's talk about them. These are materials recovery facilities. Yeah. This is the facility where the owner said, one day everything you own, I will own. So let's talk about that at that sort of a macro level of MRFs, and then let's move into some of the different products and the waste management problems that they each present. Sure. So um, a MRF, as as you uh, uh, so beautifully described, is exactly is exactly what you say. It's, it's a kind of disassembly line. So you throw your recycling uh, in the trash. It gets picked up on collections day and taken to one of these huge facilities where they pick out all of the recyclable materials. So there'll be someone whose job it is to pick out all the cardboard. Someone else will pick out all the aluminum cans. Someone will pick out the milk cartons. And then they'll bail that, all of that up together. And then they'll be shipped across the world to a recycling facility. And that could be in China. That could be somewhere closer to home. For us in the, in the global north, we kind of take this logistics for granted. But the reality is for, for the majority of the global population, people in the global south, uh, they don't have MRFs, you know, they don't have 
formal waste management in the way that you or I are used to. And so those materials will end up on one of these giant landfills, these dumps, um, like the one that I visited at the start of the book, which is called Gazapur, which is in uh, New Delhi, the capital of India. And that is essentially a, a mountain range made out of garbage. And there is a full town's worth of people who live on the on the landfill. And their job is to pick out the recycling by hand and sell it onto the recycling industry, uh, which is quite a stark demonstration of of inequality and the reality of of the amount of garbage that we create. We had, when you see it, you know, when you can see it from miles away, like towering above the skyline, it's uh, it really puts into stark relief just how much of this stuff we're, we're making. But maths maths are, are kind of amazing places. I, I would really like some of these. Uh, run tours and you can kind of go and see where your recyclables end up. And it's, it's a kind of a fun and fascinating thing to see, to see, you know, you would go and look at the, the, the conveyors and you kind of see these little snapshots of people's lives. You know, you see the family photos going past. And I remember seeing someone's packed lunch that had obviously been caught up in the bin going past. And it's kind of this amazing place where you kind of see all of humanity in, in this very, uh, strange state at the end of at the end of things, uh, and my, I found the, the experience quite profound, and I think that other people will too. It's watching Lucy and the Chocolates running backwards, mm. the famous comedic scene where the chocolates are coming down toward her, and she's got to put them in boxes but can't keep up, <laughs> so she starts eating them. Anyway, neither here nor there. You mentioned that in the global south, about two percent of waste is actually recycled and put into these MRFs and other places, and that the vast majority of it ends up in landfills. And you start the book with the discussion of the Gazapur landfill in mm-hmm. New Delhi. And just so the audience gets a sense of it before you talk about how it's managed, it's about 14 million tons of garbage in a landfill. It's piled seven yards high and covers 69 acres 69 meters high 69 Uh, meters high yeah so you can to give you a to give you a sense of of how big this this thing is you can see it from several miles away and it has about three peaks you can imagine like three little three mounds of garbage that kind of tower over nearby multi-story buildings um and you can see there's always a huge um, kind of dark cloud of these scavenging birds that like, you know, thousands and thousands of scavenging birds live on the site. And it kind of looks like a, a swirling cloud, a dark cloud uh, around it. And the first time I drove up to it, you, we could see it from, from miles away, you know, you're 25 minutes out and you can see it in the distance. And it is quite remarkable. And these kind of mega dumps, um, there's three around New Delhi alone, and they are all over the global South. If you were to go to Nigeria or Kenya or Bangladesh or Pakistan or, like this is the reality for a lot of the world. Um, and this lack of formal waste management is one of the reasons, you know, in the global South, and I've seen this, you know, if, if you know that the garbage truck isn't going to come or people will, you know, they'll drink a cola bottle and they'll throw it in the bushes and then it will end up being washed down into a stream and it ends up in the ocean. And that's how we end up with the, the Pacific garbage patch. So the lack of the formal garbage collection that we have every day is is one of the big reasons why we have such an environmental crisis around plastics and microplastics. It's kind of, it's, uh, it's quite astonishing to see. And one of the most disturbing things in this part of the book for me were the pickers. Tell us about the pickers. What are they? What is that? Yeah, waste pickers. So India is, is one of many countries in the world uh, that has waste pickers. Waste pickers are... Uh, I guess a class of people um, in India whose livelihood is based on picking through garbage uh, in Gazapur, for example, and this, this several thousand people who live around the base of the landfill. And every time the garbage trucks arrive and, and kind of dump new waste, they pick through what's arrived normally by hand, taking out what is of value. So your aluminum cans, your copper wire, anything that they, that they feel that they can, get um, some money for on the scrap market. So they bail it all up, all up together and they sell it to these uh, waste kind of um, waste traders who will then sell it onto the plastic factories. And waste pickers are a fact of life all over the world. If you're in large parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, South and Central America, Southeast Asia, I think there's about 20 million waste pickers worldwide. 
it is a tremendously difficult job. It is tremendously unsafe and dangerous. You know, you're working on a gigantic writhing pile of garbage that can literally collapse at any time. They have uh, a tendency to catch fire because, you know, they're, they're incredibly, there's a lot of plastic, a lot of oils, a lot of fats and things. Um, uh, people, you know, people die. And on top of that, it's also just deeply unpleasant. If you can imagine uh, going to work every day on, on top of a steaming pile of garbage that you're kind of picturing exactly what it's like. Um, so it was really important to me to go out and kind of capture their story and, and give you a sense of what that's like for these people and the, the, the show to what extent the modern world is still built on the, on the labor of, of these class of individuals. Um, but they also have tremendous lessons to learn. I mean, the, the, one of the things that really humbled me from the start was the idea that, you know, I, I met waste pickers in, in India who could tell apart dozens of types of plastics just by feeling it with their fingertips. And they know the value of every single material there. You know, they know that. The, uh, so for them, they kind of don't have garbage. You know, they said, they said, we don't call it waste. We call it materials. And that's a tremendously kind of transformative viewpoint on the world, because if you re understand that that aluminum can has value and that by recycling it, instead of tossing a new one, you're going to save 95% of the carbon emissions of making a new one. People will be more careful with the things that they throw away. People will be more careful with the things that they own. So they, you know, the waste pickers that I met at the start of the book and I met others on my journey were kind of like a lodestar for me. And they really opened my eyes to a different way of thinking that I've kind of kept with me ever since. I'd like to turn to some of the different categories of waste because you yeah. articulate that well in the book. And let's start with the bane of my recycling existence, cardboard boxes. <laughs> um, sure. Amazon has uh, created a proliferation of uh, cardboard boxes. I think you say that in the U.S. and U.K., it makes up about a quarter of all household waste, with Americans throwing about 67.4 metric tons of it annually. So tell us about that. Cardboard boxes, the industry refers to it as fiber, yeah? That's right, yeah. So paper and card um, are kind of, you know, they're essentially the same material as tree fibers. And um, in the paper and card industry, um they would they would call it fiber uh i went to one of the uk's largest cardboard uh, recycling facilities down in kemsley in, in kent which is on the south coast of england and i kind of saw this the the one of the reasons i wanted to write so much about cardboard is that when i first set out at this journey i went to the very first waste processing facility the first murph at the start of the book was I could not believe the number of Amazon boxes that were kind of rolling through there. You know, if you were just to go by eye, you would say the majority of what was going through there was was Amazon and delivery boxes. And the um, and the guys on the line there, you know, said, you know, in the last few years we've seen this huge spike in in cardboard because of what Amazon has done. And it cardboard is is this kind of fascinating part of the waste industry because it's almost. Uh, it's almost an ideal material in in the UK. You can turn an Amazon your Amazon box it gets put into recycling and, and gets turned into a new cardboard box within two weeks. Um, so it's kind of an amazing thing to see. Um, it is also it's kind of the perfect counterpoint to something like plastic bottles or plastic, which is much less recyclable than you would probably think. In your study, you went as you just said to to Kelmsley in Kent, in, in the UK. And the data that you report from it is mind-boggling. It receives 2,500 metric tons of paper waste every day, six truckloads per hour, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year. And is it so that most of it gets recycled and becomes magically transmogrified into new boxes or is there a secondary market for for this stuff as well it gets remade into all sorts of things um but primarily it does get made into new packaging materials it gets made into new boxes and cartons and birthday cards and and the like some of it gets made into um plasterboard for example which is a, a big um destination for recycled fiber um, and it is, and it is an amazing thing to see because you realize just 
kind of how primitive a lot of this process is, is, you know, it comes in, they shred it into, you know, imagine what's coming out of your office shredder. It gets, it gets dumped into these huge vats of water and caustic acid and washed and swirled around. And then it's essentially extruded out down into, into this slime that then steamed and, and rolled. And these huge rolls of, of recycled paper come on and it's like seeing a great sequoia or something on its side. They come rolling off these gigantic presses. And the scale of it is unbelievable. It, it, nothing will make you feel more guilty about buying your weekend newspaper than seeing the number of weekend newspapers coming in, uh, um, coming in one of those lines. It is, it is quite remarkable. One of the things that I found quite fascinating about it is that paper is pretty circular. Like you can recycle it a number of times, but as you cut it, as you kind of break apart and put it back together again, the fibers get shorter and shorter and more brittle. Um, and so you can, can't recycle it an infinite number of times, but there is so much new paper coming into the system at all time because of you know, the relentless consumption of Amazon and paper and books, dare I say, that they kind of never need to worry about it because there's kind of, it's kind of constantly being topped up by new supply. And the same is true with a lot of our recycling streams. You know, we have this idea that our Coca-Cola bottle is going to get turned into another Coca-Cola bottle for eternity but actually most of the time it relies on a certain amount of new material coming into the stream to kind of keep it refreshed and that's something we don't really talk about or think about that that the circular economy as it's so often so often called is kind of a bit of a of a misnomer because it always relies on there being new material injected into the system and we seem to have a great deal of that new material (laughs) flowing every day so more or less paper recycling is a success story compared to say what I want to talk about next, which is probably the least successful, which is, or maybe to my mind, it's least successful is plastic. So let's do a compare and contrast. We talked about already three times the size of France floating in the Pacific ocean, but tell us about plastic and the explosion of uh, plastic and the, failures i think in the recycling of plastic and the notion of wish cycling gosh that's a lot of things to pack into one question so i'll try and take them one by one um yeah plastics and i i use by i use the phrase plastics by the way because you know we have a plastic plastics uh, is is not one material. It's thousands of different kinds, right? The stuff that goes into your Amex card is very different from the saran wrap that you use to wrap your sandwiches, which is very different from the kind of industrial grade polymer that goes into the, your car or something like that. And it, we kind of treat it as all of it if it's one thing and interchangeable. And I don't think that's often helpful, which is why I'm, so I try and call it plastics, although I sometimes forget. And plastics are these historically incredibly new things. I mean, most of them haven't really been around at scale at, at a consumer scale since the 1950s you know my grandparents were were still kids when when plastics were arriving in, in a big way and when they first started kind of flooding the economy people weren't really worried about what we were going to do with them it gets to about the 1950s 1960s certainly by the early 1970s when you get the formation of the environmental protection agency um and there was this awakening to the idea that trash was was a growing problem and we were going to have to do something about it and one of the many things that the, the packaging industry did in particular was they formed these big political action groups the most famous of which is was called keep america beautiful um people of a certain age will remember this uh advertising campaigns that used to run with the crying indian who used to say you know people uh people cause pollution people can stop it i think was that was one of the lines that they used and Around the same time, so they so they essentially countered this idea of of com- big companies flooding the flooding the economy with single use and disposable products, and so they had this strategy of first of all they blamed individuals, they kind of created this idea of the litter bug, and uh, blamed it all on on kind of miscreants and devious people were leaving their uh, garbage out instead of putting it in the correct uh, trash can, and then the second thing that they did was they started to push recycling in a big way, recycling um, at, a, at, a, at a consumer level. Because studies have shown for decades now that if you think something is re- going to be recycled or if you think it's, it has been recycled, you feel less guilty about buying it. So you'll keep buying more of it. And 
So here was recycling as a solution. And they thought, well, we can, you know, people will feel less bad and they'll kind of keep buying their, their soda cans and their, their soda bottles. Um, and so they instituted recycling. Um, and they, they, it was tremendously successful as a, as a kind of PR campaign. Now, the thing about plastics recycling is that a lot of plastics, while they are technically recyclable, do not recycle very well. They're brittle. They degrade. So you can't kind of make your bottle into a new bottle. It kind of gets cloudy and, and cracks. And so they end up getting made into toilet lids or drains or carpets, you know, you, you and that's what I, I think you mentioned the term downcycling, this idea that you kind of get an inferior product every time it goes through the cycle. So plastics recycling has all of these these flaws. And for years, we kind of ignored it because I didn't don't think we want to, we really wanted to pay attention to what was going on. There was a lot of kind of smoke and mirrors going on in the in the plastics industry. We now I think the estimated uh, estimate is that only nine percent of plastic ever made has been recycled. In the US, the true recycling rate for many plastics is actually only in the single digits. Um, so plastics recycling as we know it is unfortunately in being exposed, being based on a quite a lot of smoke and mirrors. Um, and we can get onto wish cycling in a second, but I feel like I've spoken for a long time there. So I'll let, okay, let you ask. So we'll stop right there. So I want to pick up on something you said, which is what I thought was one of the most cynical parts of the plastics industry which was these industry funded quote unquote environmental nonprofits that yeah. were designed to shift the blame from the industry to the consumers. You mentioned yeah. this, but I'd like you to tease it out because to me it's the the notion of recycling always seemed like a good idea. But in fact yeah. the way you present it, um, which I think is correct upon reflection, is that really they just shifted the responsibility of mm. taking care of their own products and the waste that it was creating and saying it's on the consumer. It's their yeah. problem, not ours. We're just making Coca-Cola bottles. If they dispose of it incorrectly, it's on them. So you mentioned it, but flesh that out a little bit, because that was to me uh, stunning in its cynicism. Yeah. I mean, waste in economics terms, waste for companies is what's called an externality. It's something where it doesn't really affect them. It affects people outside of, of the company. It's something inflicted upon the wider world and the, and the consumer. And so for companies, particularly in the early, you know, as, as early as the 1950s, you had a lot of states in the US started talking about deposit return schemes and, and bottle bills, you know, this idea that you would have to take all your bottles and you pay a deposit and then you have to take them all back at the end and get your deposit back so that they'd be recycled. The, uh, packaging industry, the bottling and canning industries hated those bills. They didn't want it. They thought it was going to affect their bottom line and make people buy less. So they campaigned and they lobbied uh, vociferously against them. Recycling kind of is, is almost a magic button for them because it, they people can put things into the bin. And, and because it's disappeared, because it's out of sight, out of mind, no one realized for 20, 30 years that a lot of this stuff wasn't being recycled at all. Now, you said something there, which is, you know, recycling or something to the effect of recycling doesn't work um, or 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 can't work. And, and I would say that that's not true. Like there are many examples of plastics recycling, of recycling more widely for other materials, you know, glass and, and cans and those kind of things it does work and it works pretty well for some plastics. Um, it can work well and does work well. And there are certain industries, you know, um, in, here in the UK, milk cartons are a good example of very, very widely recycled. Um, but more broadly speaking, and you get the, into the kind of more complicated plastics, the more difficult ones, you know, you think about the bag that your bread comes in or your films or some of the heavier stuff that comes in toys and electronics. And there's, it's too difficult to do. It's, it, it doesn't recycle well. There's, there's no secondary market for it. And so a lot of that stuff was being shipped overseas. And we now know that most of that stuff was being burned or, or disposed of in, in improper ways. And, you know, in some cases, likely ending up in the sea. So it has been, there has been a huge amount of smoke and mirrors and, and kind of misleading uh, behavior on, on the parts of some of these packaging industries and, and the waste industry more widely. I think the, the thing that most shook me, and I genuinely could not believe this, when it when I first discovered it, 
is something even more profound than that, uh, even more basic than that, which is that uh, recycling as we measure it. So uh, in the UK, our recycling rate is about 44.4%, I think, at the moment. Um, someone will correct me, I'm sure, in the comments. Um, but it's been, been there about in the, for the last 10 years. Uh, and it turns out that the way that they actually measure this is when the truck full of stuff arrives at the facility, they kind of tick off a little form that says it's been recycled. Right. So it's an input measure. The stuff goes in the front gate. Yep. Job done. It's been recycled. Same thing when it's sent overseas. You load it onto the ship. The ship sails out the harbor. You wave bye bye. And it goes in the column of, yep, that was recycled. Nobody is checking whether it was actually recycled when it gets to its destination. Right. So there was no impetus for them to actually do the recycling at the other side. In this facility that I went to in the book um, up in uh, the northeast of England, which is a, was one of the UK's largest bottle recycling facilities, their yield, that is the number of bottles that actually get recycled, was about 50%. So the real rate of recycling is half of the number that is being reported and kind of touted by the by governments and stuff as being, oh, did we recycle this much? So the the whole thing from the very, first, from the very get-go is based on this like fundamental lie, this fundamental misdirection you know, and everything from that, but beyond that, it kind of builds on that. But for me, we can't even talk about recycling until we know how much of it is actually happening, right? Like the, the whole thing is built on smoke and mirrors and, and this kind of false accounting. And when I first found out this fact, I, I contacted the environment agency in the UK uh, who like deal with our figures. And I said, this cannot be real. And, and, you know, and they said, no, unfortunately, you're correct. And I just could not believe that. And the same is true. And it's the same. It's, it's the calculation is the same in the US and generally more broadly internationally. And scientists have done more some studies in the last few years about what they think the true recycling rates is. And the true recycling rates are in some cases 10% and in some places much even less than that, you know, lower than, than, than what we all think. So the whole thing from the, from the get go is smoke and mirrors. And it, it, it makes me, as you, as you can probably hear, it makes me pretty mad just to think about it, that we've been doing this for 20 years, all of us, uh, and, and not knowing that what, what was really going on behind the scenes. And one thing before we turn to the concept of used, which I want to get mm. to, and we won't get to every uh, category of waste oh, yeah. in the book. And we're going to let the audience buy this book because it's a fascinating book. But one of the things that I want to ask you is, What's up with the numbers on plastic one through four, one through six? What tell me, oh, yeah. tell us about, tell us about that because that makes me insane. Generally speaking, when I'm looking at the bottom of a plastic mm. container for blueberries and I'm seeing a one or a two or a four and I have no idea what that means. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, when you at home and look at the, you know, a plastic container, you'll, you'll know, you'll know the little recycling logo. It's called the Mobius loop. And it's those, that kind of triangle of three arrows. And most of the time, uh, if you live in the U S or the UK or most of the world now, there will be a number in the middle of it. And that number is called the international resin code. And it is something the plastics industry came up with. And it essentially tells waste companies what that plastic is made of, right? Because, there are all these plastics, they look the same. And unless you're a trained chemist, all of the time, you wouldn't know the difference. So one is PET, that's your soda bottles. Two is something called uh, high density polyethylene, that's milk cartons, and so on and so on and so on. Uh, five, I think it's polypropylene or something. Um, and the idea is that this can be used by sorting facilities to separate these things out so they don't get mixed together. Now, if you actually look at the recycling rates of, of recycling plastics, plastics number one and two, by the way, this goes up to seven. So there's one, two, three, four, five, six, and then seven, which are just other. And like there are, there are like all of the other plastics you can make are just number seven, which, which kind of gives you a, an idea of how, how seriously they're taking recycling those if they're all just going to be jumbled together as one thing. Um, so plastics one, two, like those lower numbers are reasonably recyclable, depending on where, where, where you are. You can, you can do it at some, some scale. Um, two, three, four, less and less so. Then you get higher up the, the scale and the recycling rates of those plastics are, I'm not going to say nothing, but functionally nothing. You know, they're very, very low plastic films. I, I don't know about you, but recently in the UK, there's a kind of a big drive for, to collect these kind of 
pack, you know, these plastic films, these little bread bags and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but there's no, um, there's no municipal collection. So you have to take them to the supermarket, you know, when you're all done and they'll have like a big container out the front. And they say, you know, recycle your plastic films here and I will, you know, it slavishly save them up over the course of several months. And you would go and put them in this big deposit bin thinking that they're going to go and be recycled. And then Bloomberg did an expose and found that they were all going to be burned in Polish cement kilns. Uh, which of course, you know, like it, it's, it, it almost feels inevitable at this point, but mm. you're it, it, exactly right. You know, the, the results of this code, which nobody understands in the UK at the start of this, when I started this t- uh, 2019, there were 28 different recycling labels and almost none of them are actually accurate. None of them mean what you think it means. If you, if I, I can speak in an auditorium full of 200 people and you say, you know, does anyone understand the recycling labels and not a single person will put their hand up. And that's intentional. They have known for many, many years that they're not understood and that they're misleading. But it all goes back to this idea of the companies know that it makes people feel good. It makes them want to buy stuff more. And so they have actively resisted changing them. Uh, so yeah, the, 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 you know, the labels, like everything else, they're part of smoke and mirrors and they're designed to, to confuse you. Make you feel uh, good, even though there's no actual recycling environmental benefit to it. But I feel good that I've, stuck my um number four plastic blueberry container along exactly. in my uh amazon box to go exactly we're, we're a single point recycling uh city uh, we yeah. don't have multi point ones where yeah. paper is separated from plastic which is separated from other things and i never got that either so and, and i'll just 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 say one other thing which is is kind of one of the curious side effects of this system um in the last few years, a lot of companies, because of the kind of big backlash towards plastics that have been going on, have been moving towards these bio-based plastics. You know, they're made from plant materials, corn, dead starches, things like PLA and, and, and these other um, bio-based plastics, which are still plastics, by the way. You know, chemically, once whatever you, whether you start with a feedstock of petroleum or a feedstock of, of corn, you know, feed, you, by, by the end, they're still plastic. Right. So they're still going to break down and form microplastics and they're no more sustainable. It's just some, some very canny marketing on, on their side. And one of the things that's kind of fascinating is that you end up with these these soda bottles that look and function exactly like a normal PET plastic soda bottles. And they're clear and they, they do all the same things. But you can't mix the two things together because they ruin the the, the, the plant based ones, ruin the batches of the recyclable plastic. So you we kind of had all of these these new bottles entering the system and the recycling plants hated them because it was actually making recycling worse, right? Because you had all of these other plastic bottles coming in and, and contaminating the feed. In the pandemic, we then had the arrival of these compostable plastic, probably should say, which is the similar sort of thing, right? Everyone's everyone's kind of putting in these these, these supposedly more sustainable materials, um, you know, glasses and bottles and cups and all this kind of packaging. Only... It turns out that most of those plastics, which originally just said compostable, are not compostable in your like in your garden. You know, you couldn't it's not something you could do at home. They have to be composted in these high pressure, specially designed, high heat, high pressure commercial composting facilities, of which there are very few. And in the UK, and I know this is true in the US and most states, there is no federal collection. There's no municipal collection of these plastics, right? So what was happening is we swapped a plastic that was, you know, not particularly recyclable, but was at least being recycled with all of this compostable stuff that wasn't getting composted. It was just being burned. So we all felt good because we're like, we're doing something for the environment. Yay. And the result is we just sent more waste to landfill, more waste to be burned than we did before because of the kind of cynical marketing of, of these, these companies and everyone kind of wanting to do the right thing, but being fundamentally misled. Um, this notion of wish cycling. I wish it was <laughs> yes. recycled. So I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to pretend it is. Well, we all we all want to do the right thing, right? And the and the the recycling industry kind of kind of sometimes hits us with this stick and say, oh, well, you shouldn't put things that can't be recycled into the recycling because it's wish cycling, you know? It's it and it's ludicrous, right? Because you can't expect people to know the, the the dozens and dozens of different materials out there. You can't expect people to know all the intricacies of this. It's got to be down to the waste industry to do that. But it's another case of, of this, you know, blaming the consumer. So that they can get away with, you know, doing the the cheapest and easiest thing for themselves, um, it's quite remarkable. So we started this conversation with my telling you that my father told me in the 1970s I should go into waste management because that was the future. 
my daughter, when I take our clothing that doesn't fit anymore over to the big bins outside of the supermarkets and says, use clothes for the needy, says to me, why are you doing that? I said, because it makes me feel good. I'm passing on my clothing. She says, mm. it's going to end up in Ghana. It's not going to a new family here in Washington, D.C. And I said, no, no, that can't be right. So my father was right, and it turns out my daughter was right, too. So tell us a little bit about used clothing in these uh, charity shops. Yeah, that's, I mean, your daughter's, your daughter's right. I, I imagine she might have read one of my, my stories online. <laughs> one of the other journalists have covered this story the last couple of years. But but that, that's certainly true. I mean, the we would call them charity shops. You guys probably call them thrift stores or Goodwill stores or, or what it might be. Donations um, have been a huge part of the global economy now for the last couple of decades. You take something to the Goodwill or to the thrift store, you give it away, and you have this kind of lovely idea that it's going to go and dress someone in the global south. That is, broadly speaking, true. And there are huge parts of the world, you know, lots of sub-Saharan Africa. You think about countries like Bangladesh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, where people can't afford to buy things new. Lots of South and Central America, for example. Um, the second hand or the used clothing is a huge global economy, multi, multi-billion dollar um, global economy. But something interesting has kind of happened in the last, particularly the last 15, 20 years and, and, and is accelerating, which is um, that in the West, we are buying more and more clothing than ever. And we are buying cheaper and lower quality clothing than ever before. Right. You know, you think about you can go to a Walmart now and you buy a T-shirt for two dollars or three dollars or five dollars or whatever it might be. You know, it's kind of incomprehensible uh, to someone even recently as a decade ago or two decades ago. Um, so when you give things to a, a charity shop, to a thrift store, the reality is that most of the stuff that you donate is not resold in that specific store. Only about between 10 and 30% of the stuff that is received by the store is resold in store. The rest is shipped off to these kind of big middlemen, these big warehouses where they kind of grade and sort it all together. And so, you know, they might, they, they put ship entire shipping container worth of t-shirts together and they will send it to West Africa or Chile or somewhere, somewhere in the world that needs. And Ghana is the perfect example. Ghana particularly for Europe is the kind of preeminent destination for a lot of our secondhand clothes uh, because Ghana is seen as a kind of trading hub. The clothing goes there. It's traded in this gigantic uh, market called Cantamanto market, where a lot of the buyers from the rest of the countries around that part of Africa kind of come together. And then it kind of spreads off through, through North Africa and sub-Saharan Africa going to kind of different secondhand markets, right? So it's this huge global commerce hub. And in the last uh, few years, there has been so much of this clothing going there and of such poor quality. It's essentially garbage, right? You, I would go to this, I went to this sorting facility and you see some of the stuff that people donate and it has huge rips in, it's got stain, the stuff that they should really be throwing in the trash. And when it turns up in Ghana, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about not having formalized waste management. You know, they don't have the facilities to deal with this stuff. So it ends up getting dumped, right? When you, if they open a bale, you get a, poor trader who's making a few bucks per per day out of selling used clothes they open one of these bales and find out it's full of garbage it ends up dumped on the roadside or on the beaches and i went to accra which is the capital of of ghana uh, to this market and i interviewed this man uh, called solomon noy and he's the he runs the waste management department of the city of accra and he talked to me about Accra had one sanitary landfill for the entire city, and it was built with a loan from the World Bank. This landfill was supposed to last for 30 years, and they were so inundated with clothing waste that they filled it in three and a half years. And now, what is clothing made of? Well, it's made of tree fibers, and a lot of the time now it's made with plastics, you know, chemi- you know petroleum, essentially. So it burns incredibly well. So what happened? The landfill caught fire, and it burned to the ground. And I had this grown man in his 40s who run the sanitation department crying as he explained to me that the people of Accra, many of whom live in informal settlements or slums, are going to be paying off interest on this loan for the next few decades because we filled it with our waste. You know, we, we have... We, we trashed their one chance at landfill and now the clothes are being, being dumped in the, in the countryside. And it's kind of unbelievable when you when you see 
the response of people there, when you see how, if you see the scale of it, when you see how much it affects people's lives there, it really is terrible, um, terrible thing to witness. It's a huge problem. And I think, I think the, th- the key thing there that I would say is, well, your, you know, your daughter would say, don't donate. And I, I think that's the wrong message. So often, you know, we, we, we get tricked into this thing of like, oh, okay, well, it's our, our fault as individuals. I don't think that NGOs and charities are, are kind of doing a terrible thing. I think that what we have is a system where, again, it's like out of sight, out of mind. And you have these quite often very large mid, like middlemen organizations who basically have no impetus to have any kind of quality control because when the stuff arrives in Ghana, the people there are too poor to send it back, right? Like they can't afford to send back the trash to us. So there's no cost for them. You know, there, there's no, if you send them a, a, a shipment full of, uh, full of garbage, like nothing bad happens. And the same thing is true in, throughout the waste industry. There's a lot of kind of dishonest behavior or deceitful behavior, things that are happening because of a few unscrupulous individuals where where the consumer you know, you and me at home are actually just trying to do the right thing so the answer it shouldn't be don't go and donate things to the to to your goodwill the the answer is well, we need you know regulation we need safety checks and we need to make sure that we're not sending these people worthless things people in across the world poor people across the world still need clothes right they just don't deserve your trash so if you wouldn't wear it or you wouldn't let your kids wear it why would you think that someone else would want to wear it you know in mm. Ghana or anywhere else we're coming on the close of the conversation, although I could talk to you for another hour, but I want to talk <laughs> about one thing which was very disturbing to me and we'll leave for the reader to buy the book to talk about waste electronic equipment, mm-hmm. electronics. And then, you know, the most terrifying thing of all is the nuclear waste. But I want to no. take us out on, as I said, what I thought was the most disturbing part of it, which was food waste. Mm. You mentioned it a little bit about how much food is going to waste, but you mentioned it in passing, and I'd like you to drill down deeper into it and tell us about worldwide how many metric tons of food go to waste and what the consequence of this is. The conversation might get slightly bleak here, so I'll warn people, I'll try and keep it relatively light. Um, I think I probably said at the start of this conversation that about a third um, of all food grown worldwide is never eaten by a human being. It's wasted. Um, I think it's about 930 million tons. Uh, I know it's about a trillion dollars worth of food every year um, goes uneaten. And at the same time, we have about 820 million starving people in the world. So um, it, it's, for me, the biggest injustice when we think about waste, we shouldn't just think about what we throw away. We think about waste in the other usage of the word, right? Which is is the opportunity we we lose through waste. And food waste is this area which, which kind of illustrates this point more than anything else. There is a statistic which I think I, I, I mentioned that if you add up all of the hectares of land used to grow wasted food, it would cover the entire subcontinent of India. And well, what did, what would happen if you replanted all that land with trees or used it to you know, house people. There's a statistic from, I think it's Tristram Stewart, who's a British um, food waste campaigner, who calculated that if you used all of the energy and land in the UK that we use to grow wasted tomatoes, that is like tomatoes that are literally never eaten, if you took all of that land and that energy and time and used it to grow wheat, you could feed hundreds of millions of people. It's like more than 100 million people. It It, it is kind of the numbers really are staggering and you kind of can't get your head around them until you go and see the waste that happens on farms and food waste is quite often talked about as, as there are essentially kind of three places that food waste happens, right? There's the stuff that you throw away at home. You know, you have a bag of salad and it goes off, your bread goes moldy and you throw it in the bin. That's a big chunk of it. There's the stuff that happens in stores and restaurants, which is, a bigger chunk than those stores and restaurants would often like you to believe because they use some very creative accounting and ways of to like get away with it, which, which I'm sure we can talk about if you like. And then there's all this waste that happens uh, on farms. And so I went um, 
here in the UK, I went to what's called gleaning. Gleaning is a very ancient practice. It dates back to the Middle Ages and, and before that, which is um, after the harvest has been through, you kind of go and pick through what's been left over in the fields. And in, in kind of ancient times, they would give that leftover food to the poor and to the farm workers. Now, one of the kind of side effects of this gigantic industrialized agriculture, agribusiness that we live with now is that I don't have the t- the figures on me, but but huge, huge, huge amounts of food is wasted every year at a farm level. Um, a big part of this is because of the behavior and the buying habits of big supermarkets. So, for example, uh, you buy, you, you, you know, you're a farmer, you sell potatoes, you sign a deal to sell a thousand tons of potatoes, right? And you sign this contract. And between you planting those potatoes and the potatoes being coming out of the ground, a lot of the times the supermarkets will go, actually, uh, potatoes aren't selling that well this season. So we're only going to need 900 tons of potatoes. But they'll only tell the farmer when it's too late for him to sell them anywhere else because that time they're grown and they're kind of going off in the field, right? So all of a sudden you have 100 tons of potatoes that are going wasted. Now, for the farmer... The cost of food, the price of food at, at market, at retail, is now so low, if you think about how cheap vegetables are, that for him to dig those potatoes up is more expensive than it would be for him to just leave them in the fields or dig them back into the fields and fertilize them for next year's crop, right? So you have, in, in that scenario, hypothetical scenario, you've waste, you just wasted 100 tons of potatoes based on someone's accountancy trick of like, oh, you know, this demand is not doing it. So now if you imagine you scale up for that to the entire like agribusiness of the entire United States, for example, and you you think about how much food is wasted in the fields every year. And I went and I saw this. I literally saw the crates of potatoes and, and you could stand in these gigantic crates, chest deep, and there were tens of thousands of potatoes perfectly good just sitting out there spoiling in the sun because the farmer had no market for them and they were too late to go to stores i went to see cabbages in the fields or cauliflowers there are carrots in the uk there were entire apple orchards going unpicked that for me is is a huge sign that something is fundamentally broken in the way that we sell food and the way that we talk about food and the way that we value food and the way that we value waste right because if if it is cheaper to throw something away than it is to feed hungry people like what are we doing you know so the food the food chapter of the book was one of those that has stayed with me the longest um and i think agitates me the most and and i think gets to people the most i was lucky enough or unfortunate enough depending on how you want to see it to spend a bit of time in in a food bank that's you know essentially a soup kitchen um as part of my reporting, I went, I went, uh, skip diving, you know, I went, uh, d- dumpster diving with some freegans who kind of go and they fish out food that's being thrown away and, and use it to feed, um, the hungry. And seeing the work that they did there just made kind of really, really hits home how broken our, you know, our food system is that we can be wasting this much food and still have hundreds of million people, hundreds of millions of people going hungry every day. And on top of it, what you point out in passing during the food chapter is the amount of water that mm. is used uh, to irrigate these potatoes that are going to go to waste. So it's not only the food waste and the greenhouse gases that generate or generated, yeah. but the water that's wasted when people are dying of thirst all around the world too. And, and quite often, a lot of the places doing this really intensive water intensive farming are some of the places that are most affected by drought, right? You think of somewhere like California, one of the most drought-affected countries, states in the United States, growing avocados and almonds, you know, some of the most water-intensive crops you can get. I think about northern India, the the, Gan- the plains of the Ganges, which has essentially run out of fresh water. They're bore- they can't dig boreholes deep enough to get water now, and, and that's like the breadbasket of India. I think about sub-Saharan Africa and all these countries. It, it is staggering to me, the amount, you know, I, I think I, I could be wrong here. Some you'll have to buy the book and, and find out, but I'm pretty sure it's one fifth of all fresh water worldwide is being wasted to irrigate food that isn't being eaten at a time when you know we don't have enough fresh water. It is a staggering problem, and you would hope one of the easiest to fix, right? Like this, if we 
there are innovative companies doing all sorts of interesting things with food waste. There are ways now, if we can track your Amazon deliveries or whatever, using the blockchain across the world and deliver it to your door in five minutes. And you're telling me that we can't stop a, you know, thousand tons of bananas go, like going to waste in the sunshine in Jamaica when they're hungry for people. This is a problem that would be eminently solvable. We just need more attention paid to it. And we need smart minds thinking about how to reduce that waste. Every time we think of waste as an externality, something that's free and has no consequence for us, every time a company can just go, oh, it's fine, it's just 100 tons of potatoes, what is it to me? And while someone else is hungry, we need to solve that problem. That is an injustice that we all need to come together and say, that is unacceptable. It is not okay for you to be throwing perfectly edible food away while there are hungry people, and it should be on you to make sure that it's going to good use. Otherwise, you know, don't plant it in the first place, and we'll have some of those fields back to plant trees. Thank you very much. Yeah. So my last question, in the end of the first chapter of the book, you write that along the journey that led to this book, despite the enormity of the problem, you felt more optimistic about possible solutions. Yes. I, I didn't come away with a lot of optimism. <laughs> <laughs> so take the reader out on how can we feel that there's a... Uh, light at the end of this very dark tunnel that you've uh, so painstakingly right. laid out for us. You're right. This this conversation has focused. Uh, I, I probably talked too much uh, about the depressing stuff, and we didn't really get enough chance to talk about the good news. I mean, for me, I have come away from this uh, kind of feeling very positive and optimistic. And that's because, um, for a simple thing, you know, I started this book four years ago, and a lot of these subjects were not really being talked about in any serious way, except a bunch of kind of hardcore environmentalists. And in the time since, we have had a huge step forward in terms of legislation. We've had company, we've had entire countries banning waste imports. We've had the UN is now working on the, its first ever plastics treaty, you know, an, an internationally legally um, binding treaty about the production and disposal of plastics. In the US, you see a bunch of states passing right to repair legislation, you know, which is going to make it easier for you to fix your electronics and make sure that they're disposed of safely and, and last longer. Um, we've seen a huge outpouring of, of kind of people trying to buy things more sustainably, buy recycled content reuse you know you have things like um resale apps you know gen z all these kids on tiktok are all like buying clothes second hands on these real resale apps and becoming secondhand clothing moguls uh because they know that the dangers of fast fashion so i have seen a huge change in awareness and in and consensus um not to end on a sour note but i do think what the story that is told again and again when you when you look at waste and the history of waste is people always want to do the right thing but there is always a somewhat cynical instinct among certain groups to ex you know exploit or take advantage of that of that goodwill to make kind of shallow surface level changes and without changing the system more deeply i tell this story um in the plastics chapter about coca-cola which is that in the 1990s Coca-Cola said it was going to start making its bottles out of 25% recycled plastic. And this was, you know, got a lot of lo lovely press coverage at the time. And everyone said, oh, wasn't this great? And a few years went by and they decided it was too expensive and they quietly didn't do it. They, they shelved the plan. Then in about, I think, 2005, they did the same thing. And they said, oh, we're going to do all this plastic recycling. And then they didn't do it. And then 2010, they did the same thing. And then in 2015, they did the same thing. And then in 2017, the same thing. And if you look back, there are at least a half a dozen times of this one company in particular making big environmental pledges, and they never keep their word. They never, they, they never even come close. Like you look at the numbers, they never, like in one case, they didn't even reach half the, the target that they set, right? And the reason is, is that they get lots of positive press coverage for the announcement, but nobody goes to check. And because it's not legally binding, because governments are not forcing them to do it, and it's optional, it's like a marketing gimmick, nobody, they don't get in trouble when they, when they, when they cancel things, right? So my worry now, you know, we're, we're in a cost of living crisis now, and you see companies already 
rowing back their climate commitments or pushing back deadlines. And my, my worry now is that we see people starting to backtrack and we get into another one of those phases of, okay, we made some promises, but they were unrealistic and, and, and they get away with it a second time. So what I really want to do with this book is channel a bit of that out- outrage, you know, channel, it's, it's, it's a bit depressing. Yeah. But most of all, it, it makes, makes me kind of mad. And I want people to feel mad and I want them to use that to go out and, and make more substantial change. We need lasting change. Now we can't be waiting another decade while people baff around with these promises that, that can end up getting broken. So um, I hope people read the book and I hope they use some of that indignant anger to kind of challenge the system, challenge the companies, go on social media, name and shame, agitate a little bit and make sure that we get the lasting change that we actually need. Make sure that we get legislation, make sure we get system wide changes to our recycling system recycling sucks right but that's because we're not really trying like we've not done it the the people doing it didn't want to make it work because they were making loads of money that doesn't mean it doesn't work in theory right it just means we need to fix a broken system and the same is true of the wider uh, of our waste problem there are solutions we already have we just need to spread them around equitably right we need to make sure that the poorest people in the world have waste collection the same as you or i do and we need to make sure that the companies that are pumping the stuff out there are helping to pay to get rid of it. The book is Wasteland, The Secret World of Waste and the Urgent Search for a Cleaner Future. Oliver Franklin Wallace, I'm very grateful for you to have written this and to really bring this call to action forward in this public dialogue. And I, for one, am going to start buying less stuff. (laughs) It's lovely to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.